Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Attention all personnel. Please clear the launching area. Fire. Fire. Oh, baby. I'll give it to you. That looks really good. Yes, it does. It's dead on. Okay, keep the chatter down in this room. Are you ready to begin? Hello, welcome to Space Boffins. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientists. I'm Richard Hollingham. And I'm Sue Nelson. In a moment, we'll be speaking to NASA's outgoing head of science, Dr. Thomas Zaburkin, otherwise known as Dr. Z. Plus, we visit the lab of a scientist who's just sent seeds around the moon on Artemis. And we chat about the role of science fiction with the curator of a new exhibition at London Science Museum. Science fiction, if you gauge it by how well it predicts the future, it's never going to score well. You know, people are always like, oh, well, where's my jetpack? Where's my flying car? Since 2016, he's overseen the success of the James Webb Space Telescope, the first flight on Mars, and has even launched research into UFOs. But now the Associate Administrator of NASA's Science Mission Directorate, Thomas Zaburkin, is leaving the agency. Thomas joins us now. Thomas, you've been there just over six years. You've overseen a pretty remarkable list of missions. How would you describe your time at NASA? Exhausting? Exhilarating? Combination of the two? All of the above. It's an amazing job. It's uh, When you started, uh, it's pretty much really clear from the beginning that you cannot do it alone. Right. It's going to after day one, you realize, wow, the only way we're going to be successful here is with a very successful and empowered team. And that's why I spent so much effort on that. Uh, It's nonetheless exhausting and sometimes scary. uh, But overall, I just really feel it's uh, one of the most impactful jobs one could have a job that truly changes how we think about nature, about ourselves, but also helps uh, protect and improve life on Earth. I mean, I mentioned James Webb there because for many people, you know, that was almost seen dead in the water at at one stage. You know, it felt really quite scary. And you did have to to turn it around. Is is that something you would call your sort of proudest achievement in, in turning something that was destined to be a success but had a pretty rocky journey? Uh, we almost uh, lost it. Uh, you you pattern matched it right. Uh, we, uh, I think in 2017, 2018, uh, had severe questions from uh, Capitol Hill, uh, the senators, the elected officials, the representatives, whether or not we can be successful because we did not demonstrate success. We needed to turn it around. And I would say I spent one to two days per week on this telescope all the way through its deployment. So, uh, so I do uh, consider it kind of the marquee achievement just because it was so hard to do. And, and it was, uh, I also believe, one of the biggest leaps uh, that we were trying to achieve. I think it will fundamentally change how we think about nature and especially the early history of our galaxy. 
and I mean, the universe. Yeah, it's easy to see now. That, you know, it, it all, all that stuff seems almost forgotten, all the problems uh, that, that James Webb had. What, what did you actually do? I mean, how did you sort sort that out? Because I think that's a really interesting uh, a story about management, really, or how you can turn something that is perceived to be failing into such a success now. No one's going to be talking about its problems now. They're just going to be talking about what it's achieving. Yeah, so like you know, it, it's like a football team. Uh, you would say uh, you have amazing athletes on the pitch, and you know they're not playing well. They're not playing as a team. And I, what I had to do uh, coming in is recognize that that's the problem. We made enormous numbers of mistakes, which is not because people are not good. It's just because they're not aligned with the objectives. They're not understanding what they need to do, and I had to uh, change quite a number of leaders in the uh, overall team, but then bring the team together as a team and then be successful. And, and frankly, we turned the kind of efficiency of this uh, team relative to schedule from close to 45% to 95% in like six uh, months or so and stayed with it. Uh, so even uh, with COVID and other kind of curveballs that came, uh, we never really uh, lost track of it again. So I just couldn't be more proud of that team and and the amazing people that enabled it. And how much was resting on on its success on, on you? How much pressure was there on you on on NASA with the mission? Well, let me just tell you, every single hearing I went to Capitol Hill for, I was beat up on that, no matter what the topic was. <laughs> we could have a hearing on on Mars and like, you know, uh, a senator come up and beat me over the head. And of course, I always wanted to say, hey, I'm the guy who found the problem and fixed it the guy who created it. But uh, nonetheless, uh, we take those jobs with their entire history into full responsibility, and it's the right way. That's why we have different parts of the government to create accountability. And, and so it was really hard, and uh, and it was difficult to listen to sometimes. Gosh, yes. I can only imagine what that must have been like. I mean, you place great emphasis on leadership and teamwork and making sure everybody is always on the same side. You know, your background is as a, a space scientist. Did you find that help? Because for some people, it can go either way. People can't necessarily make that move from being at the front end effectively to managing and overseeing. Because not all scientists make good managers. Uh, that, that's correct. Uh, certainly, certainly, I've seen a lot of scientists and work for a number of them who... I would not consider great uh, management and certainly not great leaders. Uh, I think what, what what's really uh, what helped me, frankly, is building space hardware myself. So I actually have experiences. And even though those instruments are relatively small, you know, one went to Mercury, some of them looked at the sun. I know how it feels to build those teams and build the, uh, it, uh, with those teams uh, an instrument as part of a system that Give you the, gives you the humility kind of to recognize, hey, at the end, uh, you're standing next to the technician who will have to do their best job to be successful. And so for me, once you realize that, you, you, you know that you need to think of the team kind of bottoms up. You know, I work for the manager and the manager works for the technicians, right? So for me, it's like, that's how we built those uh, missions and and uh, once you do that right there are all these uh, lessons it helps to learn about leadership uh, kind of also have mentors that teach you when you make a mistake so it's it's all of these i think that i help you improve and be successful i mean just staying on that um solar 
physics uh, side of things. I mean, you oversaw the launch of the, the Parker probe and also NASA's involved in ESA's uh, solar orbiter. I, I remember, I think I interviewed you for um, European Space Agency around that, that time with that uh, with that mission and you were just so happy i mean it must be great to have sort of linked up your career there that you're from your early days as a, a physicist to to working at nasa and overseeing and going from missions. europe europe to the states as yeah. well isn't it? it combines the two yeah that's right i really the first instruments i built one was for soho a european mission one was for wind an american mission right and 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 you know, seeing those two missions go together, both of them had been involved in earlier, and many of the ideas were much, much older than even my entire career. Right? You know, uh, Solar Pro being a fifty-year-old idea, and finally it launching. Both of them also were in trouble. I, I remember uh, I shipped a spacecraft to launch over the objection of everybody on uh, Parker Solar Pro because it had some challenges. And kind of my point was, you always bet on the team, right? If we're not ready, we're not going to launch. We're going to ship it back. And as I said, the rest is history. And, you know, Solar Orbiter also had some challenges. And and these two missions together now are really revolutionizing the way we think about the heating of the corona and our, you know, favorite star, the one that gives us life here. Are there any rules here about which missions go off piste and which ones stay on track? I mean, is there anything that people can do at the beginning of these things? Or is it inevitable that in space things always go wrong and things always go off track somewhere? So it's absolutely clear that uh, we we're only interested in missions that are hard. I'm actually not interested in anything that we've done before and kind of, you know, we don't want to build Mission 27. You know, like, I mean, frankly, if that's what we do, let's go to industry. They're actually much better at this than we are, so we're really not involved. So look at uh, uh, Parker Solar Probe. It came in on cost and with below cost and on schedule. So in other words, it was successful. And what they did well is to take all the key technologies off the table by developing them early before the mission started. And I think that's just one of those big insights. Uh, Web did not do that. We, we started with a design that frankly had so many gaps, kind of as it went, uh, it, it, it just was difficult and difficult and frankly the hardest part was is to fit it on top of a rocket which was really limited you know Webb is in a six and a half meter uh, mirror Hubble is two and a half meters uh, Webb is lower weight than Hubble to make it so low weight and fit it into the volume just enormously difficult so you can tell up front that one is going to be a lot harder than the other do you have personal favorites though because I know you were you were quite excited recently um about SWAT because I'd spotted the SWAT spacecraft at uh, Talos Alenia Espace and in the south of 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 France over the summer but then you've also overseen things like Artemis which is you know, just as you're, you're leaving NASA is on the verge of its second mission to go around the moon in this time with astronauts. You know, do you, do you have a preference for, is it the spacecraft or is it the, the, the manned or, oh, I shouldn't say that naughty season, uh, crude <laughs> space flight? So look, I mean, uh, what I look at uh, my job at right, is really to enable advanced space science kind of enable exploration that was never there before, both crude and, and robotic, right? And and so 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 for me, right, kind of my role on Artemis is to really bring, if you want, the science community on board, right? Kind of so often crude 
uh, missions, right? We're just done in isolation away from science. And that, that is just not the right way to go. The moon is such an interesting place uh, with its science questions. We are long to go there. We have, you know, right now close to 40 science experiments that have been developed. And many of them, we're just starting also together with the crew uh, to really actually interface uh, robotic and crude kind of methodologies into a unified best uh, science, right? So the, I'm excited about that because it's it's a huge leap, but it's also intellectually and culturally hard. So I, I love those things. What's great about SWAT, uh, together with many of, you know, close to a dozen uh, Earth science missions that are up there now and are going to be launched uh, shortly is, is see every one of them is really uh, focused on our future. Uh, in the case of SWAT, like looking at fresh water uh, all over the world for the first time, uh, kind of uh, it globally, you know, uh, with water being that resource uh, of importance that it is in so many communities, uh, kind of the importance for humans on, on Earth. That, that's what makes that exciting. And so I'm having a hard time coming up with the favorite, right? Just because it, in, in all cases, what, what really attracts me is kind of the enormous challenge coming to life kind of uh, in a mission uh, because of the excite, because of the team that enables it. So for me, seeing that over and over again can get addicting. And in fact, if anyone listening uh, wants to hear a bit more about SWAT, we had Professor Paul Bates from the University of Bristol talking about the SWAT mission um, on last month's podcast. Now, I mentioned um, in the introduction that about the UFO research, and and that seems an incredibly brave move. What what made you? treat this seriously. I love the word brave, by the way. Well, it is, it's bra- it, you must know what I mean there, Thomas. It is brave in terms of, of career because so many people associate UFOs with, you know, a descent into madness. I don't, but there you go. Yeah. So, so the first thing I discovered is that it gives you a lot of new Twitter followers <laughs> and a lot more direct messages than perhaps you ever wanted. But, uh, but, but it is what it is. Look, one of the things I feel is really important is that science is used to address any and all key questions uh, that uh, ahead of us. It's not always all of the solutions, but it always adds solutions. And the type of uh, questions that I'm interested in and that really advance science are what I would call high-risk, high-impact questions. Those are questions not in, in terms of risk to life, but reputational risk, kind of coming up with kind of ideas that are truly innovative and some people may call crazy, but really trusting that the tools of science will provide uh, answers is really what I want to stand for. I think that's what we need to do in the future. I think it's in many cases we have not done enough. And sometimes we have questions from even decision makers about whether science will help in this. And what I want to model with the tools that NASA has is that there is no question that we cannot address that way. And so the UAP question is one of them uh, because I believe it's a data poor, and by the way, many others believe it's a relatively data poor field that by adding science, data and rationale can really make a leap forward. Why wouldn't it be an interesting question if so many people on earth are interested in it? And so for me, the reputational risk is worth it because I want to demonstrate that science is truly important in all domains. And actually, in doing that, you could maybe overcome some of the conspiracy theories. It's almost worse with 
all the voices of authority and all the voices of serious science just ignoring the question. Oh, I agree. I think it's, I think when questions are being asked and, and, and some of them, you know, it won't matter, right? And you know, if there's always the French that, that it, it, frankly, no matter what happened now, they already have their opinion. So I'm not worrying so much about them. I just really don't believe that, that uh, all humans uh, that are asking questions like that, they're kind of at the fringe of kind of truly innovative or a little bit crazy, are always on one or the other side of that line. And we should take them seriously as humans and answer those questions the best way we know how. And I just really believe we sh- not only should, but have to do that if we want science to be relevant in the future. I'd like to come back to the the Moon and Mars. You talked about the science of of the Artemis mission. How do you articulate that and ensure that people get that it's more than just a flag planting exercise? Because I get this question again and again and again about why are we doing this? When there are so many problems on Earth, why are we going back to the Moon? People think it's been there, done that, don't they? How how do you articulate and get that, that science message across? So what's really important is that the whole science community is on board, not just one leader, right? And and what has happened, and many people have missed it, but it's it's really important that we've really changed the way we're leading that. In our decadal, in our 10-year strategy for planetary sciences, there are objectives of highest priority now that are human-enabled, crew-enabled. And so basically what needs to happen is that the whole planning on prioritization of the science community as a whole is bringing that into the sphere. The moment you're there, it's a matter of implementation, right? It's it's almost, see, what I don't want to do is kind of do things with a crew that can be better done with, with uh, robots. But also don't want to do is kind of ignore that uh, humans can be an important part in doing science. You know, and the reason, the example I always give, like studying volcanoes, and uh, caves kind of underground, uh, you would say, is one of the most dangerous research areas you could do. How are we doing it? The answer is with humans and with robots, both. We, we're not just delegating it to the robots, right? Uh, we are doing, we're there with humans. Why? Because the human decision-making is such an important element of that breakthrough research to today. So why do we think that that is different when we go to another world. So for, for me, it, it was important. It's continuing to be important for the science community as a whole to really start bringing that opinion to bear. And that's that's what's happening now in planetary science. We need that. It needs to happen elsewhere also. Now, we have a, a, a new year ahead. Are there any particular NASA missions that you are most looking forward to? So uh, one of the uh, milestones that's going to happen late in the year. Frankly, it's going to be, you want to be in the U.S. kind of late September through uh, October. Basically, what happens is is uh, the OSIRIS-REx uh, mission is bringing back its sample into the Utah desert in late uh, September. And just in October, just a little bit afterwards, a month or so afterwards, is the first uh, ring-shaped eclipse. And then uh, the, the next uh, uh, spring uh, is a uh, full eclipse in the U.S. So so together with these assets that are in play, uh, Parker Solar Probe, Solar Orbiter, and so forth, there's a lot that, that is happening. In terms of new missions, what's really exciting next year uh, are uh, we'll have three launches to the moon uh, with uh, commercial um, uh, providers. That's a very new way of doing business, seeking to 
make missions that usually cost more than a billion or a kind of a half a billion dollars, bring that down to 100, 200 million, and, and really doing science, but also building the community around that, both the commercial and the science community. And I think finally, when I would say, of course, uh, we're going to launch the Psyche uh, mission, which is uh, the mission that we unfortunately this year missed a launch for uh, to a potential metal asteroid. I wanted to just wondered actually because often scientists who work on instruments earlier in their career, I was always quite surprised when I first discovered that they often don't go to the launch because obviously there are time constraints, there are people constraints in terms of who can go and what have you. Was your first launch actually seeing a launch? Was it when you joined NASA or had you been lucky enough to go to a launch before? So I'm kind of embarrassed to answer the question, but of course you can guess why, because my first launch was when I was at NASA. I never went and, and, and it's kind of weird because if I actually knew how it made me feel, I would have gone. I, I just didn't guess how emotional it's going to be when the rocket noise hits your chest, the kind of the bright light at night or, or even during the day sky, the, the, the day uh, sky overall, kind of all for me, uh, the emotional, uh, the emotional elements of launch. I never, I never guessed I would have gone earlier, and I didn't. I guess I had a question. We 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 teased about Mars. I mean, I can't ignore Mars. I really want to get a question in about Mars. Um, what's the plan now? Is that with we've obviously had the ExoMars rover, European rover, uh, which sort of on hold now. But you've got what's the plan now? I mean, you've got these two rovers on Mars doing a really excellent job. Is that sort of back on track? Are we looking at sample return? Are we looking at uh, ultimately people people on Mars? Is is there a sort of long-term exploration plan, if you like? So uh, robotically, uh, uh, what, what's happening even before the end of the year, we're going to start depositing the, the first cache of samples. It's a full collection of curated samples from both volcanic and sedimentary origin that cover basically all check all boxes that we had set out for a returnable sample. We're going to put that on the surface of Mars. That's kind of, if you want the minimum mission success for Perseverance, we're going to continue to collect and intend to drop off those samples that are on the the rover onto a Mars ascent vehicle that will bring it back together with the European partners back to Earth. Kind of uh, uh, the, These missions are going later in the decade. So, so we're on track with that. Uh, we have... Uh, uh, both uh, on the European and the American side, really made a lot of progress. It's a very hard mission. It's the hardest mission right now, I would say, that's going to be the James Webb for the next person coming in. Just really keep him on track and, and move him forward. Uh, we're excited about uh, Europeans making a decision on ExoMars. We're right now working with all of our government stakeholders to really do our part to it, is to enable European effort, mostly in the UK and Italy, uh, to really uh, get uh, get there and and entry enter and descend and land onto that uh, surface uh, and uh, and we already had a number of meetings, frankly, uh, with uh, European leaders since the decision at the ministerial. So we're excited. Uh, we the government processes will take a few months before we're on the other side, but I'm uh, very optimistic about it. And finally, what about your plans for 2023? Any specific ideas yet? So I bought a, an, 
a season pass for a ski resort. And, and <laughs> because what I want to do is really signal to everybody that I want to take a break. Uh, I want to uh, then spend time and really start thinking about what's next. Kind of, if you want uh, the intensity of my uh, job that I've had, uh, really does not make it possible for me to to really go into an extended search. I just really believe that we have a job. We should focus uh, our entire attention to it, especially if that job is very much in the interest of of the public uh, and uh, and uh, also uh, a job in which we're being paid for by taxpayers. That that uh, you know is their well earned uh, money. So we're Really excited. Uh, yeah, I'm excited to take the break, but then also figure out what's next. Ah, well, Dr. Thomas the Birkin, good luck. Thank you very much. And thank you for being such a good mate to the Space Boffins podcast. I'm happy to. I really uh, love what you're doing. Uh, you know, uh, communicating science to a broad audience is, is, is very important. And you've done uh, just an exceptional job. And I look forward to uh, continuing to listen to your podcast uh even as i go down the ski slopes (laughs) (laughs) yeah just don't break a leg yeah Yeah, yeah. (laughs) this is space boffins we're in partnership with the naked scientists do get in touch with us on facebook and assuming uh sue has not been banned uh twitter too uh also if you like the podcast uh, do please consider writing a review on your podcast platform of choice it is much appreciated it works for the algorithms you keep saying this but um it does i know i know yeah wow it does we're 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 slaves to the algorithms now it's probably fair to say that most listeners to this podcast also like science fiction there's a venn diagram there is probably isn't a big overlap big chunk in the middle yeah and the connection between space Science and science fiction is is well known with science fiction, often inspiring real life would-be scientists and current research inspiring the what-ifs of science fiction. So when we heard that the Science Museum in London had opened a new exhibition called Science Fiction, Voyage to the Edge of Imagination, naturally we wanted to see it. It covers TV, films, fiction, art and iconic outfits, including Iron Man, Lieutenant Ahura's outfit from a Star Trek movie, as well as a replica Cheops spacecraft and Darth Vader's helmet, and examines subjects such as AI, climate change and sustainable living. But the first thing we had to do was step inside a shuttle in order to take a trip to the future. I'm Glenn Morgan, I'm the curator of exhibitions here at the Science Museum. How did you decide what areas within science fiction to sort of relate to the science as well? I mean, that was a really big challenge because obviously science fiction is such a huge and sprawling genre and there are so many different topics that you can interact with when you're talking about that relationship between science and science fiction. One of the things that led us off, though, was definitely where we felt that there was a good conversation between the topics because for us, the thing that we wanted to talk about here was that there is this backwards and forwards between science and science fiction, that it's not just science fiction inspiring science and it's like one directional but actually that there's a like a feedback loop and that it's always coming back and that there's something more about the culture of science fiction and the culture of science and their relationship rather than these kind of more simplistic 
like one directional relations and so we really wanted to make sure we captured that I, I quite like that idea because the, the idea I suppose in one instance is science fiction is aspirational mm. isn't it yeah absolutely so like one of the kind of misconceptions that you often come up against with this is when people talk about science fiction as predicting the future. And we wanted to very quickly kind of put that to bed because science fiction, if you gauge it by how well it predicts the future, it's never going to score well. You know, it, people are always like, oh, well, where's my jetpack? Where's my flying car? Where actually what science fiction does is it offers anticipations of the future. It offers extrapolations from the present and so actually what you're looking at with science fiction is more a reflection of our relationship to science and technology than it is any sort of kind of crystal ball that shows you the future. And that's the relationship that I think is really interesting. And I think that's the relationship that is in some ways harder to talk about, but is more inspirational because it offers more potential to us as the kind of contemporary consumer or creator of scientific or science fictional imagination. It feels as though it's quite a difficult boundary now. I think maybe the 1950s, when you were watching, say, you've got a big replica of Gort, Mm -hmm. for instance, from the day the Earth stood still, you couldn't possibly imagine something like that. Whereas more recent science fiction, it feels as though which is the stuff that's made up and which isn't. And you even have a a replica spacecraft Mm -hmm. there too, which isn't science fiction. It's real. Yeah, I mean, that relationship between kind of truth and fiction is really important, and we were really careful about that in the exhibition. So every label does actually say whether it's a science object or a science fiction object, because there are instances where, if you don't know, you might not realise. So, for example, we've got a Star Trek tricorder, medical tricorder, which is a a passive scanning device, and then we've got the XPRIZE-winning prototype of the real thing that can diagnose 30-something conditions, and if you, you know, aren't paying attention or you're just not kind of up to date on those kind of um, technologies, then you might not realize which of those are kind of fiction and which ones are science, which one is the prop, which one is the um, scientific prototype. And so we had to be really careful to label that. But also when you're talking about things like the 1950s, the pace of technological change in our society has accelerated so much in recent recent decades and so you know it often feels like we're living in a science fictional world now and that's why I think science fiction is the most relevant of our kind of genres and why I think it has the most to say to people. I think the other thing you've managed to do is keep it fairly optimistic Mm. I mean yeah you've got alien and you know we're all going to be killed by these horrible monster things (laughs) but actually you've not gone down uh, which uh, we're Criticism. all going to die. Yeah, yeah, we've, yeah, which yeah. a lot of criticism. Well, there is a touch of that with the climate change. Yeah, but there's, there's a lot. There's, I interviewed Andy Weir, the author Andy Weir, mm-hmm. and he was critical of this tendency in science fiction, particularly more modern science fiction, to go down this dystopia route. Because yeah. it's quite easy to do that, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And dystopia is a really popular kind of uh, subgenre or, or form of science fiction. You know, there, there's some very, very popular um, dystopian stories. And, and we did want to kind of tip our hat to those and make sure we acknowledge those stories but it was important to us to talk about science fiction in this exhibition as being a source of inspiration and therefore you know a a source of hope dystopias can inspire you because they can show you a future that you want to try and avoid but I think there's something powerful about the ones that kind of offer you hope and offer a kind of aspiration as well and so that's why we've got things like um, Star Trek and, and, you know, those kind of shows that offer those kind of positive features. 
But even in the section at the end where we're looking at challenges that face us, so climate change being the big one, we tried to focus on um, these kind of more hopeful futures that show a kind of global vision of how we might build a better world rather than focusing on the kind of disaster porn kind of aspect of it. So we worked very much from the kind of Kim Stanley Robinson angle of future gazing, which is how, because that's how he plots his futures. I guess one's to mention on that, you've got a picture at the end of these very futuristic looking habitats. Mm. And I thought, oh, there's a picture in science fiction. And they're real. These were real, these sort of futuristic tents in Africa. Yeah, so we wanted to show science fiction comes from all sorts of different forms. You know, it's not just films or books. We wanted to make sure we included some architecture in the exhibition and kind of challenge people to think about science fiction and architecture. So we've got two pieces in there, but the one you're talking about is by an architect called Abir Sikali, and she's an architect from Jordan in the Middle East, and um, she designed, yeah, these tents. She was inspired by the plight of Syrian refugees in, in her native Jordan, but she also uh, created them with an eye to the fact that, you know, source, major sources of refugees in the future are going to be as a result of climate change. And so there are these amazing structures that look like desert roses or something, but they combine traditional Bedouin technologies of weaving and collecting water from the atmosphere, along with cutting-edge things like soft solar fabrics to kind of generate electricity and wicking materials to kind of lock in that moisture that they collect from condensation. So they're a really nice fusion of kind of um, contemporary and future technologies with traditional practice. And that's the sort of thing that actually quite realistically could in the future be taken to another planet, say Mars, for instance, because soft solar cell technology, perhaps using natural materials like bamboo materials, they're light, which is what you need if you're on a a spacecraft because weight costs fuel, costs, costs money. So there is that overlap there too with sort of refugees, natural materials, doing something for an emergency on Earth that actually could apply to a future on another planet. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a great thing about this, what we talk about as a science fictional way of thinking, which in that last section in particular, we wanted to highlight, because really what science fiction is offering us when it's thinking about the future is not a roadmap or a do this to get, um, you know, a destination X. It's have you thought about things differently? What if? And it encourages us to think, what if we did this? And so that gives you a certain kind of like intellectual flexibility, which means that you can solve problems in different ways. So those technologies, those solutions that may be useful for climate change or for you know, humanitarian crises can also be useful for much more kind of you know, high-volted missions to Mars, but it also works the other way. Technologies we develop to go back to the moon and, and to go on to Mars will have applications for us on Earth if we're looking to live more sustainably or work in a more cooperative and efficient manner and things like that. So We've touched on Star Trek already, and, and I think, you know, I feel like this one on the BBC now, I'd say other franchises are available mm-hmm. because the exhibition does cover everything from Aliens and Prometheus to 2001. But Star Trek, okay, my favourite, and I believe your favourite maybe too as well. Absolutely. You've got, like, everything from Nichelle Nichols' suit from the 1979 movie that was made, and I was quite stunned to see how big the, uh, the wedge heels were on that, on that outfit. But as someone who's, you know, as a bit like Rich, we're into all the science fiction stuff, I did learn something new there, which was, it made me think Star Trek, the brilliant 
number four, the whales. And there's, there's this bit that said that Seti had explored language by using whale song. And that blew me away because I had no idea. Yeah, we didn't make an explicit um, Star Trek IV Voyage Home reference in that <laughs> oh, video. I, I saw it. But it, we, we, we knew it was there for the fans. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, we worked quite closely with SETI to get the content for you know extraterrestrial life in the exhibition to get the tone of that just right. Because obviously we wanted to, we had to address that topic, but we wanted to do it in a kind of responsible way. And um, so we talked to them about like, different ways of talking about aliens and, and extraterrestrials. And um, they talked to us about some of their current research. And the one that really just entranced us completely was this, this work by an um, astrophysicist um, and astronomer, but, but now as, uh, as much a marine biologist, uh, Lawrence Doyle. So he was part of the team that discovered the first exoplanets. Like He was you know, a, a leading astronomer, but for the last, I think, 15 years, for a long time anyway, he's been working with humpback whales off the coast of, of, Nor- of North America, of the... Uh, Californian um, and West Canada coast. And yeah, they've been using information theory to study the, the language of whales. So not just not the song that we're all very familiar with from humpbacks, but the more communicative kind of chirps and chirps that, that they make. And the original idea was to just use information theory to analyze patterns and work out if there's a um, quote-unquote universal pattern for intelligent language, which they could then use to filter all of the signals that we receive from space to try and work out if any of those are from intelligent sources. The plan was never to be able to actually translate the whale language, but actually, through studying it and through applying these patterns, they have started to make these kind of translations. So they've recorded um, instances where they're pretty sure the whales are saying, like, hurry up and and you know where and humpbacks work in teams they create bubble nets to catch shoals of fish and things and they've definitely found ones where like inexperienced whales have been kind of told off by more experienced whales you know like tighten up like do a better job and good hunting and all that kind of thing and they know they're getting it right because they've actually broadcast some of these from their boats into the water and got expected replies back and things like that so we are at that point where you know Mr. Spock can dive into the water and, and say, they are not the heck, you're whales. They are very fond of you. But we're almost at the point where we can maybe have that conversation. On those sorts of topics, and I actually, th- you know, related to that, I thought you explained the Drake equation, the Frank Drake equation, really well. Because I've interviewed him, and I never really understand it when I interviewed him. But mm. I do understand it now, thanks to your display. I thought that was very well done. But w- what about getting that fine line between the possible and the impossible? And where do you draw the line on that? Because I, I noticed you, you did warp drive, but you sort of didn't do much on teleportation, for example, which is a, a staple of, I think we agree around the table, <laughs> yeah. apart from me, your favourite uh, franchise. Mine's Doctor Who. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's teleportation in Doctor Who as well. Oh, there's all sorts of crazy there's stuff in Doctor, in Doctor Who. everything in Doctor Who at some point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was all part of our kind of filtering process. So, you know, we couldn't cover every topic and every um, aspect, even of one franchise, especially something as, as sprawling as, as Star Trek or indeed Doctor Who. Teleportation is an interesting one because there is some science that you can kind of relate that to. You know, scientists have done experiments where they've transported single atoms or, or atomic particles across certain I think distances. It's properties, isn't it? It's properties. Properties, yeah. So you know, there are there are gestures in that direction, but it's it's leaps and bounds from being you know sending sending a human or even a, an object 
across any sort of distance and then all the philosophical questions that all of that opens up. So we always had to make decisions about what we could and couldn't include. And it was about where those good dialogues and conversations were going to be. So Warp Drive, for example, there's a really lovely story about um, a physicist that we were able to include, a Mexican physicist, Miguel Alcubierre, who was inspired to do the kind of nuts and bolts um, uh, theoretical physics about whether it was possible to bend space-time to allow warp-like faster than light travel within Einsteinian physics and he did the numbers and and decided that it was it requires an impossible amount of energy um, but he's a theoretical physicist he doesn't care like as long as it's theoretically possible then that ticks the box and so we we just thought that that was really cool that you know we could show this relationship between theoretical physics that I think a lot of people think is inaccessible and difficult and and kind of you know on a different level and something very popular like Star Trek right there alongside that much more humanistic story of, you know, Nichelle Nichols inspiring someone like Mae Jemison to become an astronaut. So in that very small space, we're able to show how one franchise can impact at different levels within that kind of science story. As a result of curating this, have you had any conclusions about our possible futures or are possible futures you would want? Or is a Star Trek future more likely? I don't know about more likely, because then we, we get into that kind of science fiction as prediction territory again. But, but I think the... Trick question. Trick question, <laughs> yeah, didn't, didn't fall for it. Yeah. But I think the experience of curating this exhibition and, and kind of having to put all of this science fiction into so much dialogue with each other and, and with the topic of science and with the kind of visitor journey that was so important for us to capture as well... I think what it's brought home to me is just reminded me of the kind of breadth and diversity of the genre and how it has so much to say to all of us. So it was really important to us that we captured a global story in this exhibition. So we've got material from all over the world. And, you know, there was so much more that we could have included in every aspect. You know, it was a, it was a really difficult task to curate and, and select the material. So... I think, if anything, this exhibition has just brought home the strengths of science fiction for me and reminded me how strong those relationships with science and and with people are. And I'm sure that, you know, I'll be drawing on those forevermore in in future exhibitions as well. And you're sticking with Star Trek as your (laughs) favourite franchise? Yeah, for now, certainly. Glyn Morgan, curator of the exhibition Science Fiction Voyage to the Edge of Imagination, which is currently on at London Science Museum until the 4th of May. Unlike the museum, though, which is free, you have to pay for the exhibition and tickets are, well, adult tickets. Children's probably cheaper. Adult tickets are £20. Which is quite expensive. Yes, yes. I think you have to see it because I'll talk about what I think about the exhibition in just a second. I think you have to see it as the museum is free and amazing. I don't think the exhibition, the science fiction exhibition, is worth 20 quid, but it's like a donation to the big museum. Yeah. And you'll have a great day out because the mm. museum is fantastic. And it does get better as it goes along, doesn't it? Because I was a little bit sniffy when we first like went in that shuttle that well, you was, because I couldn't really hear what was no, being said for starters was, the, the sound balance was so a bit, bit what weird. they've tried to do is put some sci-fi-ish effects in but they're pretty lame 
to be honest. Yeah, I, Whereas I don't the think exhibits, it needs them. It doesn't, it doesn't need, need them. No. Whereas the exhibits are really strong and actually the ideas build and it does leave you thinking. Mm. So on that respect, I think it's a very strong exhibition in terms of exhibits and in terms Particularly of Particularly by the end of it because yeah. it builds and yeah. builds and builds. And so I say, if you like us, I started off a bit sniffy and then I was like, oh, okay, this is a bit more interesting. And I did get fed up with that voice on the screen. I was sort of like, shut up. There was but this then AI me. all the yeah. way through, yeah. Um, but then the more you got through it, the more actually it's one of those exhibitions where you can just sort of stand there and read it and think, oh, okay. And then that gets you thinking and then read something a bit more. And and it just sets your mind off thinking about lots of different aspects of, of science and science fiction. And there were some very cool things which we'll, we've talked about in the interview. And I just like that that idea of what science, uh, how science informs science fiction and how science fiction informs science. I think it is really interesting and I think it explores that very well and asks a lot of good questions as it goes along. But the opening's really lame. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Strong finish. Strong finish. Weak, weak start. Weak opening. I guess actually, the middle, the middle yeah. bit, it's actually been on lots of the posters. It's this sort of big arch, a light arch, which, as you will know, Rich, when I saw it, I got really excited, held up a couple of people who were visiting in the exhibition because they were trying to work out what we were doing because I thought this big archway which was lit up it was sort of a cross between like a time tunnel and that stone arch in a Star Trek episode I think it's the city on the edge of um, forever where you, you know it's the city on oh forever. is it really <laughs> yes, is where it? you jump oh, <laughs> where you jump through it and you end up in 1930s England or something or whatever where uh, Joan Joan Collins was. But I it, thought it was New York, wasn't it? Um, was it Maybe New York? It thing? Yeah. Anyway, yeah. It, it's that. It really reminded me of that. So I spent probably way too much time getting Richard film me in slow motion on our phone, so that I could then be out of shot, so that we have something to cut to, so that I could then jump through it in slow motion. And had to do it several times, um, and then later I've edited it so it looks like I'm coming through like like McCoy or Spock or, or um, Captain Kirk. Meanwhile, these two visitors to the exhibition, I sort of only clocked them and said, I'm really sorry, I'm really sorry, go through. And they were going, no, no, that's a great idea. So after we'd finished, I'd finished, they then were doing it themselves. And that's the one thing I think, you know, that exhibition, they... There was there's a lost opportunity there for a lot of interaction for people to have a good time with that with that um, time tunnel, which I'm now going to call it from now. On. And will you be sharing that on social media? I will. I'll put it up on Facebook and and Twitter. Not least because it took us about 50 minutes <laughs> to it, do it. It did hold up quite, and it's probably only about. Four seconds yeah, by the time it, you honestly, it looks good. It looks good. Yeah. I, I do look like I'm travelling through time. Yeah. To the, yeah. That's what I think. Anyway. Yeah. No, it, it does look no, good. It's good. So, on balance, Science Museum, brilliant day out. Thum- thumbs up. Yeah. And the exhibition gets better as it goes on. Yep. I think you and will if you're also a big find. Fan, yeah. I, I think you will also find the opening disappointing. Yeah. So, ignore, ignore the opening and just, yeah, dive, dive on in there. Some, and some quite interesting ideas. I think that's the thing. I mean, you can hear the curator was a great speaker. Oh, he's brilliant. It's the ideas yeah. that that are that that are behind it all that are, are really good. 
In October's podcast, available, of course, on all good podcast platforms, and some poor ones as well, actually, uh, we featured the story of moon trees. And these are trees grown from the seeds taken to the moon by Apollo 14 astronaut Stuart Ruser. Well, it turns out there's now going to be a new generation of moon plants, uh, as well as having Sean the Sheep on board. The Artemis One mission, which has just successfully returned to Earth, as you'll know, also carried some seeds. During our recent trip to the States, we visited Federica Brandizzi's plant biology lab in Michigan State University in Lansing. When we spoke to her, Artemis was on its way around the moon. She began by explaining what was on board. Seeds, seeds from a weed that is called Arabidopsis thaliana. And this weed is really exciting for scientists like me because it allows to do research into the uh, genome, into the DNA, into how plants live. So this is a model plant, and we're using seeds to explore new frontiers in space. So where exactly are your Arabidopsis, have I pronounced that right, <laughs> seeds <laughs> on Artemis? So you pronounce it really well. It's difficult, but you pronounce it really well. So they are actually in small plastic tubes. They are sealed. And these tubes are contained in uh, custom-made containers that allow the seeds to be shielded from changes in uh, temperature. But also these uh, boxes contain other science. So it's not just the seeds. They're also microorganisms. They've been sent to space by other scientists. Once they come back, what will happen? We're going to study them really carefully. These seeds are not just a normal weed. They are some modified seeds in the sense that they contain mutations that allow these seeds to have more branched-chain amino acids. Branched-chain amino acids are essential amino acids. We as humans, animals in general, can only get them from plants. And so... These amino acids, as the name implies, are really important for the life of organisms, and plants produce them. So we thought that if we could equip uh, seeds with more of these amino acids, maybe we would see a different response uh, to space flight than wild types, so unmodified seeds. So when these uh, seeds come back from space, we're going to analyze them for amino acid content, and this will tell us how space has affected the content of the amino acids, but also we're going to check how they perform for germination and how the plants that will produce from these seeds will actually do when they grow, either in normal conditions of growth or in stress that we can provide. And the point of this is what? To understand how space affects plants because we'll need to grow plants in space? Exactly. So we will need to use this kind of experiments to understand how plants perform in space, because if we want to have a sustainable environment in space, we need something that makes it sustainable, that can produce food and that can produce oxygen. And guess what? These are plants. Of course, we're not going to feed astronauts or humans eating a small plant like Arabidopsis thaliana. You need real crops. So information from this weed can tell us which variety of crops we should select to send to space to make a sustainable environment in space. And Artemis is going well, it's way out of Earth's orbit, out around the moon, a very high orbit, and then back. 
is that going to give you very different information to the sort of information you get from growing plants on the, the space station, for example? I believe so. Those experiments on the International Space Station, which we have done in the past, although with different kind of um, seeds, have been very informative and have have allowed us to address very specific questions. Now, going around the moon is really breaking a frontier, something that you know, has not been done for these seeds before. So I believe that we're going to learn and gather new information. This is, would be really important for future missions to space. How many will you have? We've got the labs just, just through the door. <laughs> we can see them behind us. I believe we must have sent up there at least 5,000 seeds. But this takes up a really small matter of space because they are tiny 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 which uh, has some advantages because of we have limited in space for space we don't have much space out Mm. there is it like mustard seeds effectively are they mustard seeds a variety of species that relates to mustard yes we're going to compare them with a control set of seeds that uh, will be treated in at the Kennedy Space uh, Station down in Florida. So what we call the, the ground control will be very important. Seeds um, will experience the same kind of environment that they could experience in space without all the stress that comes uh, from space. So this is why it's a control. And we will be able to compare the seeds and make essentially observations that will really be informative of what um, the seeds have sustained in space compared to what is happening on the ground. How do you unpick what effect is going on? So you've got in space, particularly going out around the moon, you've got radiation exposure you've got the lack of gravity you've got all the various accelerations as it's going through i mean there are quite a few things that you've got to allow for yes and and so at the moment we will have to take the data and start comparing luckily we have previous uh, experience with you know even the flights to the iss using seeds and so we, we, I think we will be able to compare step by step what is influencing and causing possible changes that we're going to observe. So what I'm trying to get to is that once we get the seeds and we're going to do research on them, we will need literature. We will need to go back to the literature that's been already published, already what is known about seeds grown on, on this planet and space environments to start teasing these components apart. It's pretty exciting, though, isn't it? Because this is the start, potentially, of, of growing plants in deep space and growing plants on the moon. I cannot agree more. I, is, um, I can tell you, when, um, when we sent the first time seeds to DISS, we were all together uh, in a lab meeting and we could watch the launch. It was just beautiful and we shed a few tears in excitement. And I can tell you, with ex- Artemis launching finally, we had the same reactions. Never gets old, you know. And it's really pushing new frontiers. It's making history. There's been so much excitement in people contacting me, people sending me emails, normal people just congratulating. And, and that's really nice. The other thing is, um, it's been fantastic working with, with NASA. So the excitement is not just in the everyday person, it's also for NASA. And we get 
again, I get emails of people that have been working with to to get this flight together, this, to get the science in this flight. And they are as excited as anybody else. So I think, yes, it's palpable. It's there. NASA has selected experiments uh, for the ISS that really be inf- will be informative from different angles of biology. And I think this is really important because if we want to make it in a sustainable environment for the future, you need to learn so much from different angles. Okay, well, we've come out into your lab. There are the, you know, various lab benches around, plastic boxes, flasks, and now what look like giant fridges. But are they fridges? They're actually ultra-freezers. This freezer in particular goes up to minus 80 degrees centigrade. So it's really, really cold. Don't put your hand in <laughs> no, there. Don't put your hand in this. No, no, no. Now, though, next to it is what we call Percival, which is an incubator where we grow seedlings. So you can see how small baby Arabidopsis plants are. These are about two weeks old. And these are lots of, like, petri dishes, about the size of my hand in diameter, with gorgeous little green sprouting... (laughs) You can't see the seeds, actually, are they there, but they're just so small? Yeah, they look a bit like cress, actually. Yes, don't they? Cress. yes exactly. This is fail cress. So you can see the seeds are tiny. And so that allows us to pack so many in tubes to send them to, to space. So, and this is just a bit more grown Arabidopsis. And you see also the flowers here. In nature, more or less, this will be the size of the Arabidopsis plant. And when you get these seeds back from space, which, as you say, are packed in these tiny little tubes, you're going to do everything to them, full genetic analysis, anything you can think of. Yes, we're going to see how the DNA has responded, how it is expressing compared to ground control, and also we're going to check the amino acid content. So we're going to do some biochemical analysis to see whether space has decreased or increased the amount of content in these seeds. Well, let's shut the fridge door as it's quite noisy because I believe you're just going to show us some of the seeds you've got here. Yes, here they are. So in this tiny tube, as you can see, they are tiny, tiny... um, I'm going to have to put my glasses on. (laughs) I can't because it looks like an empty... um... No, there are many, and now that we see here... So actually, I said... Mustard. I compared them to mustard, but actually, it's they are a fraction. They're like pinpricks yes. of yeah. of black soot or something. Exactly. They look almost like dust, right? Yeah. Yeah. So imagine collecting this from the plant. But you know, it's it's fascinating to be able to get so many individual seeds from just a silix or just from a pod of of other plants. So it's a highly productive, highly productive species. Professor of Plant Biology at Michigan State University, Federica Brandizzi. And we'll follow that. I think we should follow that up, shouldn't we? Yeah, absolutely. And we'll probably do more moon trees at some point. Well, it's interesting, isn't it, finding out what little experiments are going on. Um, And similarly, when we heard from... um, Glyn, the curator, talk earlier about SETI and, and, and whale song and the combination between them. Well, not whale song, it's whale communication. Um, I definitely want to try and follow that up. So I'm hopefully uh, we will get someone from SETI to talk about that project too.
And that's all from another year of Space Boffins. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks also, too, to our amazing guests and uh, thank them for coming on the podcast. Uh, next time, we'll finally have that much-trailed interview with astronaut Matthias Mora. And we've also got a really good, fun uh, chat coming up as well in a, in a future podcast very soon with astronaut, former NASA astronaut Mike Massimino to um, share with you. And we'll tell you all about the awkwardness after that. <laughs> oh, yes, yes, yeah. we promise. Yeah. So thanks for listening. We'll be back in 2023.